Thank you for stopping by at the Movie Marquee. Our podcast reviews well-known movies and contains spoilers. The podcast may contain mature subject matter and mature language. Listener discretion is advised. Enjoy the show. Quiet on set. Places, everybody. Welcome, everyone, to the Movie Marquee. My name is Eric, and with me is Ted. Are you talking to me? Are you talking to me? Well, who the hell else are you talking to? You talking to me? Well, I'm the only one here. Who the fuck do you think you're talking to? And Ken. You're only, you're only as healthy as you feel. You're only as healthy as you feel. And I'm your host, Eric. Thank God for the rain to wash the trash off the sidewalk. And on that note, we are reviewing Martin Scorsese's 1976 release, Taxi Driver. Ken, tell us about some of the particulars of this movie. Thank you, Eric. Taxi Driver, starring Robert De Niro as Travis Bickle, Jodie Foster as Iris, Sybil Shepard as Betsy, Leonard Harris as Charles Palatine, Albert Brooks as Tom, Peter Boyle as Wizard, Stephen Prince as Andy, Harvey Keitel as Sport, and Martin Scorsese as the Taxi Passenger. This movie was directed by Martin Scorsese, was produced by Julia and Michael Phillips, it was written by Paul Schrader, music by Bernard Herman, distributed by Columbia Pictures on February 8, 1976. It has a running time of 114 minutes, a budget of $1.9 million, and it made $28.4 million at the box office. That is impressive. Under $2 million for such a great movie. How about that? And that's $28 million in 1976. Yeah, yeah. Which I is mean, $28 those... billion in today's money. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. It might as well be. Hell, those actors, who I think De Niro took 35000 home and Scorsese was like fifty or 60000 I think they mm-hmm. said, if I remember right, all the characters was under $2 million on the payroll. It's insane. Ken, what are the reviews uh, of this movie? Rotten Tomatoes has this certified fresh at 96%. The critics' consensus is a must-see film for movie lovers. This Martin Scorsese masterpiece is a hard-hitting as it's compelling, with Robert De Niro at his best. A.D. Murphy of Variety says, It's a powerful film and a terrific showcase for the versatility of star Robert De Niro. Time Magazine says, Scorsese seems to need scripts with well-designed humor and performers with the spirit of Ellen Burstyn to compensate for what seems to be a fundamentally depressed view of life and the belief that sobriety is the equivalent of seriousness. I don't think that person liked it. That is a weird review. That's odd. Ellen Burstyn? Ellen is not even (laughs) remotely close to this movie. Yeah, I know. It's one of like two reviews that were bad and the other one was just uncomprehensive. Roger Ebert of the Chicago Sun-Times says, Taxi Driver is a brilliant nightmare. And like all nightmares, it doesn't tell us half of what we want to know. And then Peter Bradshaw of The Guardian says, What a mad and brilliant film it is. 1,000 degree proof 70s cinema. He gave it a 5 out of 5. And Ben Walters of Time Out says, New York may have changed, but Taxi Driver is as powerful and painful as ever. And those are the reviews for Taxi Driver. 
Very cool. Very cool indeed. Ted, what is the plot of this movie? Taxi Driver. Travis Bickle is a 26-year-old, honorably discharged U.S. Marine and Vietnam War veteran suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder and living in isolation in New York City. Travis takes a job as a night shift taxi driver to cope with his chronic insomnia. He frequents the porn theaters on 42nd Street and keeps a diary in which he consciously attempts to include aphorisms such as, You're only as healthy as you feel. Travis becomes infatuated with Betsy, a campaign volunteer for a senator and presidential candidate, Charles Palatine. After watching her interact with fellow worker Tom through her window, Travis enters to volunteer as a pretext to talk to her, then takes her out for coffee. Betsy agrees to go on another date with him, during which he takes her to see a pornographic film. A disgusted Betsy leaves. Travis attempts to reconcile with her to no avail. Enraged, he storms into the campaign office where she works and berates her before he is ordered to leave by Tom. Experiencing an existential crisis and seeing various counts of prostitution throughout the city, Travis confides in fellow taxi driver Wizard about his thoughts, which are beginning to turn violent. However, Wizard assures him that he will be fine. In an attempt to find an outlet for his rage, Travis begins a program of intense physical training. A fellow taxi driver refers him to a black market gun dealer, Easy Andy, from whom Travis buys four handguns. At home, Travis practices drawing his weapons and modifies one to allow him to hide and quickly deploy it from his sleeve. He also begins attending Palatine's rallies to scope out their security. One night, Travis enters a convenience store moments before an attempted armed robbery and kills the robber. On his trips around the city, Travis regularly encounters Iris, a child prostitute. He fantasizes about saving her from her life of exploitation. Travis solicits her and tries to convince her to stop prostituting herself. Soon after, Travis cuts his hair into a mohawk and attends a public rally where he plans to assassinate Palatine. However, he is chased away by Secret Service agents who see him drawing his gun. That evening, Travis drives to the brothel where Iris works. He confronts Iris's pimp, Sport, outside of the brothel and shoots him. He enters the building and engages in a shootout with Sport and Iris's client and is shot several times. Travis manages to kill the two men, then brawls with the bouncer before Travis stabs him with the knife and kills the bouncer before slumping on a couch next to the sobbing Iris. He attempts to kill himself but is out of bullets. As police report to the scene, a delirious Travis imitates shooting himself in the head. Travis goes into a coma due to his injuries. He is heralded by the press as a heroic vigilante and is not prosecuted for the murders. He receives a letter from Iris's father thanking him. After recovering, Travis returns to work where he encounters Betsy as a fare. Travis drives her home and allows her to leave without paying her fare, departing with a smile. As Travis drives off, he becomes suddenly agitated after noticing something in his rearview mirror. Very cool. Let's dive into Taxi Driver here. Ken, do you remember the first time you saw this movie? When and where? How? Two weeks ago for this podcast. I had, no kidding. I had purposely avoided this film. I wouldn't say like the plague, but I was avoiding this film because of the subject matter and other people who had saw it said it was very depressing. And I'm not much for a depressing type of film, so I stayed away from it. But for this podcast, I have watched it three times. Nice. How about you, Ted? This is a constant theme about when I've seen movies, but this is one I saw in college. 
I had seen Goodfellas probably earlier than I probably should have. I seen Goodfellas in high school. So Scorsese was always, from that point on, was one of those directors that I sought out everything that he did. I would have watched this probably alongside, I don't remember the first time. Most likely, I probably would have watched this and Last Temptation of Christ in a very short period of time together, which is an, say something about me, I think, hmm. more than anything else. This is a movie that once you've seen it, you can't unsee it. It almost is like hypnotic for me. It draws me in. It always leaves me wondering things, and we'll talk about what those things are. What about you, Eric? I'll be honest, I don't really know for sure the first time I saw this movie. I came to the table a little late for Martin Scorsese. I probably uh, saw this movie mid-90s. To get off subject here, we'll be talking about this movie later, but I saw The Color of Money probably in the early 90s, and that movie just kicked it off for me. It was incredible, and I started really doing a, a deep dive into who was Martin Scorsese in his movies, and I probably saw this one in the mid-90s. Obviously, it was on video, DVD at the time, and I was, like you, just captivated by it. I probably haven't seen the movie in 15 years. I've seen it a couple times since, but probably not in 15 years. And I watched it twice. The first time I watched it as a pleasure. The second time was more of analytically kind of dissecting it. And it is definitely worth the watch. And you hit the mark on the head, Ted. It is a movie that you cannot watch. When you see it, you walk away going, wow, that's pretty powerful. Another reason why I didn't see it since just recently is it's not really on TV over the last 20, 30 years. It might show up on Turner Classic Movies if it has. I don't, don't think so. And we'll talk about why that's probably a good idea. Right. And I think that's <laughs> another reason why I didn't get to see this film, because I would have to purposely go out and rent it. Back in the day, you would, I would have to go to Blockbuster to rent it because it wouldn't be on paid cable, at least not when I was ready to watch the film. I want to make sure that I get this out there. This is a positive thing. This is a movie that if you are a movie connoisseur or you consider yourself a movie file, you have to see this movie. This is not a movie that you can just skip. This is a seminal movie. This is a true work of art. This is a masterpiece. Regardless of everything that we say after this about how we analyze the movie or what we think about the movie, this is why this movie keeps showing up time and time again on every list of movies to see before you die. It's as simple as that. It is as disturbing as it is powerful. And I think it's one of those movies that is definitely disturbing. For sure is a powerful movie. The one thing that really strikes me about this movie, and it's a theme with the New York 1970s movies. Any movie that is literally made in the 1970s that involves New York, New York is just a shithole in the 1970s. <laughs> Still it's, is. No, 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 no. It's Ted, not no. compared to the 70s. No. In the I know, 70s, I mean, you had bad politics. You had bad crime you had garbage strikes it mm -hmm. was a cesspool it was yeah. bad kind of like and Wrigley it, Field kind of like Wrigley Field that's very funny yeah. so uh -huh. I can't think of a movie made in the 1970s well you know what actually I can now that I think about it besides Woody Allen movies any movie made in the 1970s that involved New York is really showing the seedy side of New York City some people would argue that this movie doesn't transfer well to today's movie viewing because of that. And I, I mm -hmm. care to differ. I think this movie transfers extremely well. And if you watch this movie for the details that it is, it 
is a very relatable movie, and a lot of the themes in the movie are very relative to today. Oh, definitely. Oh. You hit the nail on the head. Boom. Right off the top. Where I will say that Taxi Driver differs a little bit from other 70s New York movies. New York almost is a character in this movie. Scorsese does this with a couple of other of his New York movies, where New York actually kind of plays as a character. It's odd, but in the grand scheme of things, I don't care if you live in Detroit or parts of Los Angeles or name a major city, you're going to relate to what you see on screen in Taxi Driver. I The people who say that it doesn't translate well, go down to Nine Mile in Detroit. You see the same trash that Travis Bickle talks about. Yeah, but not everybody has been exposed to, let's say, 1970s New York. I'm talking about Detroit of today. But not everybody's been in Detroit either. I have never been to Detroit. So and I've never but been I to know, New York. I, but, but you know what the situation is in Detroit. It's These Detroit, are no worse than what it is here in Chicago. Dude, we can do a whole podcast that, you, on Detroit. You need to, you need to cut that it's, out. That's yeah. Because that is so inaccurate, <laughs> Ken. It's not even remotely No, we just funny. had 41 people died this weekend alone from gun shooting. So, I mean, hey. Chicago is not anywhere near as dire as Detroit is. Detroit in the 1950s had a population. That's of almost 3 million people. It was our third largest city. Today, it has under 700,000 people. Yeah. But again, I think you're assuming that everybody on the face of the planet is going to be able to relate with Detroit. And I don't think that is the case. Actually, what I said was if you know a major city, you're going to be able to understand what Travis Bickle is talking about because you know right. the situation that it's in. Right. I don't think be... I don't think that this is something that's just specific to the 1970s New York. I was using Detroit nowadays as an example. The one thing I would say about New York, more so than any city in the whole world, is New York is a character in multiple films, not just Scorsese's. You have tons of films out there that are set in New York where New York has range, like an actor has range because it could play a lot of different things. It could be a romantic plot of of the world, but then we see the dirtiness of it here in Taxi Driver. New York is a well-rounded actor in a lot of movies. Clearly. The New York of this era, though, there are not really it's, a lot of positive. It's, it's lost just, a little bit of something. But when we look like a Harry Met Sally is a movie that we reviewed together, New York did play a part. Yeah. Of, that was of the that. New York in 1990. That's, that right. was Ed era. New York. Right. Yes. A big difference. New York is a character on itself. When it plays a backdrop, it plays a backdrop of a movie specific to that time period. Absolutely. When Harry Met Sally, it was a beautiful, positive, everyone loves New York backdrop. Like I said, that said Koch is New York. All his 1970s movies with Diane Keaton and stuff. Everything Woody Allen does is pretty much based in New York. Except his more recent stuff. Obviously, Woody Allen is a little eccentric and a little uh, but paranoid he's considered, about everything. He's considered one of the ultimate New Yorkers. He is. Clearly, he is a name that is known. Everyone knows Woody Allen. Whether you like him or not, you know the name. And back to Martin Scorsese. Martin Scorsese will say he's one thing for sure, and that's a New Yorker. a New Yorker. Correct. Yep. Marty would have known this 70s New York. It's like Mean Streets. It's right out of a playbook of his life. And Taxi Driver plays into it perfectly because your character is coming out of Vietnam. He has post-traumatic stress disorder before it's even PTSD. That's just one of the things. One of the many things 
things. I mean, it is a city at that time that had a major garbage strike in 1975, rampant prostitution, rampant pornography sections that's referenced in this movie. It was just a very miserable city to live in where everyone pretty much hated everyone. It's like that line, I'll, I'll bring this up because it always makes me laugh, for the mayor in Ghostbusters where it's a New Yorker's God-given right to hate everyone. <laughs> it makes me think of the Sybil Shepherd character, Betsy. And he even says this, she comes in with that white dress and she's kind of like the beauty of New York that we're not seeing in this film, but she does represent that beauty of New York. It's what he wants New York to be. Exactly. Yes. Yes. Does she really exist? We brought up that he has PTSD. Psychologists have done a, a test of what they believe Travis Bickle suffers from. One of the things that keeps coming up is schizoid personality disorder. It's mentioned time and time again. It's not out of the realm of possibility. That she never existed? Like she never existed. The thing that would lend you to believe that she does is that she does interact with another character. But are we seeing her or are we seeing, like you said, Eric, his idealized version of her is this like fight club it's different than fight club but are we seeing what he wants her to be or are we seeing her as she really is and see and this is something that keeps coming up throughout this movie the reality is different than what travis dictates to us as the narrator well, you can as say the, that in the as whole thing is a dream and that start of the beginning of the movie is a dream. I like to think that this is not a dream, but he looks at these two women because they are two women of different sides of the fence. That's to put it mildly. You have what he wants his woman to be. And it's a painted picture because he's already infatuated with her before he even goes in to meet her. It's a painted picture. And who's doing the painting? Well, he's doing the painting, but doesn't mean she doesn't exist. Exactly. I was just positing that theory, but I don't know if that's actually really her. He's obviously put her on a pedestal. Right. And because she sticks out from everything else when she walks in with that white dress and Scorsese shoots it, that she's completely different than everybody else in the scene. Right. And Marty's actually in that scene. It's very odd that he walks in to volunteer a perfect stranger off the street, and she yet agrees to go out with him. She's, that uh, is odd. Yep. She's different than anything that she's in ever York. experienced. <laughs> yes. Though. And she's excited by his approach. I mean, he's straightforward. He tells her things that maybe she wants to hear and some things that she's never heard before. And she's excited by this idea of this guy doing this. The reason why I don't think that she's a dream is because she does bite back. She does say things to him that make him feel uncomfortable. She makes fun of his pronunciation when he's talking about organization. She doesn't understand his joke. She doesn't understand his jokes. She doesn't really understand him. And then when he takes her to see a pornographic film, he doesn't understand why she wouldn't be into that. He doesn't understand the difference. He doesn't know who Christopher Cross is. He doesn't know any of, you know. Chris Christopherson. Chris Christopherson, yeah. Was it Chris Christopherson? Yeah. Yeah. I'm sorry. That makes a little bit more sense. (laughs) You and your Christopher Cross, all of a sudden I got a flash back to Tootsie. Dude, that's Jimmy Tootsie, Christmas, man. Stop. That's Stephen Bishop. That's a different person, but I understand where you she merge them together. But she basically says that he is that song from Chris Christopherson. 
He's an individual, is what she's getting at. She says it in a way that makes him... He questions, wait, I've never been a pusher. I've never pushed anything on anybody. Yeah, I mean, he doesn't understand... He's the, a contradiction, is what she says. And He it's, doesn't understand the reference. Because his frame of mind is that of maybe of a 12-year-old. He's got a mind of a kid. He's messed up from Vietnam, clearly. We don't know the history issues. of him before he went in. He could have been messed up before he went in. Think about what he says about his parents. He wants to make his parents proud. It's He sounds like he's a, a childlike person. The moment he sees her, and this is why I wonder what we're actually seeing when we see her, he immediately has an entire fantasy world that is well developed in his mind about them and everything. He is a scary individual. He develops these fantasies in his mind. We assume that this letter that he writes to his parents is real. That's delusional. That He is in a full-blown mental health crisis writing that letter because everything there is a falsity. He's created another world for himself. He's in a really serious mental health crisis. And 1970s New York, or really anywhere in 1970s, was not capable of handling a mental health crisis like what he's going through. He might be creating this whole separate world, but... I just see a fight in between him. And I don't know if it's a fight between makeup stuff and real stuff. Because he goes back and forth between Iris and Betsy on what he's trying to accomplish with them. One, he wants to save Iris. He wants to get Iris out of that situation. But at the same time, he wants to be with Betsy because he's lonely and he wants the perfect girl because he sees the perfect girl for him. And he goes back and forth, assassinate the presidential candidate. But then Well, the reason he wants to do that is because that's Betsy's cause. This is all part of this. Once the fantasy world comes to an end, that's when he spirals out of control. When she leaves, he wants to destroy everything that was part of that fantasy. That's why he develops this idea to assassinate Palatine. Then he has a moment of clarity when he replaces the fantasy with Betsy with becoming the savior for Iris. I think there's more to that. I think he knows there's something wrong. He goes to Wizard and he's telling Wizard that there's a problem going on inside of him. Wizard is the wrong person to talk to. We all know a wizard, a a guy who kind of talks and thinks he knows everything. And Travis goes up to him thinking he can get some good information from him, but he basically gets nothing. But I think Travis is aware of this struggle and he's reaching out. He obviously did get some help. When he was discharged from the army, I don't know if I really believe he was honorably discharged, but he obviously did get some sort of psychiatric help. That's why he's journaling. Back in the day, that was a huge mental health psychiatrist type of thing. I think he was honorably discharged. You, you see the injury in the back, all that scarring. I think he experienced something that automatically made him have to be discharged from the Marines. And he was honorably discharged, but he did have some mental problems because of all that and i do agree with you i think writing that down in that notebook because originally when i thought about the notebook i thought of a diary i thought of a kid so i think you're more accurate there than what my initial thoughts were i was thinking ted you you brought up some good points about this kind of being a fantasy world in his own mind how he's building things up and as you were saying that i was thinking of some of the scenes in the movie what are the odds of him picking up a presidential candidate in his cab and starting a meaningful conversation What are the odds of him bumping into this prostitute several times in a city of 7 million people when he travels 
all over the boroughs in New York. He says that. He goes, he'll pick anyone up anywhere. Mm -hmm. What are the odds of all this? And the more I think about it, it is almost like it is a little bit of a fantasy, like a delusion that is built up in his head. And him being the narrator, he's kind of taking us on a walk in his mind down Mm -hmm. the road of his life as he sees it at that time. I think he's drawn to certain areas, though. I think the reason why he might see those repeated things often is when he's attracted to like the Iris situation. She gets into his cab. He can't stop thinking about her. He's fixated. He's obsessed. Right. He's obsessive. He's obsessive. So he returns to the same places over and over and over again. He might have been well-traveled, but because of Iris and because of Betsy, he's going back and forth between the same places. And that's why all these things happen to him. And as far as Palatine goes, being that it was 1970s New York, I don't know if that's a big stretch that somebody like that would have found their way into the back of a cab. Whether or not they had the conversation, that is a whole nother thing. But if it had not been New York, possibly. John Lennon took cabs a lot. That's true. The conversation, though, could have happened because he's a politician. If somebody speaks to him, he's going to speak back because he doesn't want to represent something that would offend him. But if you notice when he leaves the cab and shakes his hand, when he's walking away, he makes a little shrug a little bit like, what a crazy person did I just talk to? And if you look at De Niro, all of a sudden he goes from being really happy to see this presidential candidate to being a little there's something not right in his look and i think he sees what the presidential candidate just did i agree i think that would be the only case to give you that the conversation actually happened I don't think that that conversation had anything to do with him wanting to kill him, though. His desire to assassinate him was his desire to kill everything that had to do with Betsy in this fantasy world that he lived in. It's why he burns the flowers. And see, and this is another thing, as far as to whether or not how far this Betsy thing go, all of those flowers end up in his apartment. Well, that's because they were probably refused and he was the one that ordered them. They wouldn't have known where to deliver them back. No. Uh, there would have been a billing address, wouldn't there? Not in the 70s. 70s New York. No, they wouldn't have cared. Here's another reason why I think that shrug at that time frame might have set him off to kill him is because he looks at Charles Palatine as being a false god. False uh, he's, he, or then he's blowing him off and not taking him seriously. I mean, that easily could have been a... For somebody who's in a mental health crisis that could be something that would send somebody off the edge. Yeah, and he could probably still think that he is doing something right for Betsy here. He's thinking, hey, you're backing a bad person here. I should kill him off just for you, and then you'll be proud of me, and then you'll want to be with me because I saved you from being with this candidate that is totally wrong for you. We see how he reacts to Albert Brooks's character, Tom. Right off the bat, uh, I don't like this guy. This guy's totally wrong for you. He almost sounds like he wants to knock this guy off because he represents somebody that is totally wrong for her and the only person that's right for her is him. That's why I'm thinking he might right there with the shrug. That might have set him off. Very possible. Anything is really possible here because he is a terrifying character because one, being a viewer you don't really know what to trust because he spirals out of control and he's violent. It is a bad combination. Unfortunately, this is something that was all too common in the 70s, especially guys coming back from Vietnam. That's why homelessness in the 70s post-Vietnam became such a huge problem was because of the mental health issues. The Reagan era closed a lot of the mental health hospitals and put these people out onto the 
the street. That was another thing that caused these people that need the help, they couldn't get it. See, that's the thing. He acts just normal enough most of the time, but he is your prototypical of what you would look when you psychologically analyze a spree shooter or a mass killer or an assassin. You don't have to look any further than John Hinckley Jr., who tried to assassinate President Reagan. And that's the segue I was looking for. Because you had him, but then you can also see a lot of comparisons between Travis Bickle and Mark David Chapman, who assassinated John Lennon. And then there's a man, his name is Arthur Bremer. He was the man who attempted to assassinate presidential candidate George Wallace. Now, the man who wrote Taxi Driver, his name is Schneider, he's come out and said that he wrote Taxi Driver without any knowledge of anything that Arthur Bremer had to say. But when the FBI released parts of his journal that he kept... It's so strikingly similar to Travis Bickle's writing that it's downright scary. And I don't really want to go into his comparisons with Mark David Chapman because the biggest thing is what Eric was just going to allude to, which is John Hinckley Jr. Holy smokes. Taxi Driver was shown in its entirety to a jury to prove to the jury that John Hinckley Jr. thought he was Travis Bickle. Again, trying to impress Jodie Foster. Foster. He was trying to save and impress Jodie Foster. That is truly terrifying. And if you look at some of these more recent, the mass shooters and stuff like that, Travis Bickle is basically an outline for these people. He's a loner who doesn't fit in, who has some sort of mental health issue, and is violent. And God knows what he saw in Vietnam. I mean, because he definitely has the PTSD portion of that as well. We know that he's violent at the end when he's getting ready to assassinate Palatine. And then he goes and kills off sport and people that are keeping Iris as a hooker. But up until then, he barely shows any physical... He's building. He's building. His teapot is boiling and it's not whistling yet. Could anything have... Set him off? not go off at all. I don't think so. Not at the point that he got to. He needed help. And like you had brought up Wizard, and there's a whole lot of to be said about that as well. He, it's my favorite part of the movie because it makes him look human. I mean, he looks human for the most part throughout the movie, but in the last third of the movie, when he's going down that spiral, as you said, there's that moment that he's reaching out for one last straw, one last opportunity to save him. And, and that person tells him he needs to buy a gun. Yeah, he buys four. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he doesn't just buy a gun. Of course, he's informed by Martin Scorsese's character that sits in the back of the cab, what a forty-four Magnum <laughs> will do. Is that scene the tipping point of having the guy in the car and him realizing that he's actually the one that's capable of that murder and not Martin Scorsese's character in the backseat of the taxi? Here again, do we really know? This is part of the maddening part of this movie. Did those interactions happen? Right. Or was he just looking up at that window while just he was sitting the there? And because it's New York and it's the 70s, it almost has a little bit of the David Berkowitz type of mentality, too. A little bit. 
Interesting enough, though, Martin Scorsese wasn't even originally supposed to play that character. I guess the guy who was supposed to was sick. And so he ended up doing it. And you have to, especially with a film that you have a low budget, you're risking a lot here with this movie. And you're putting yourself in the movie at a time where he doesn't have a lot of movies under his belt. So that says a lot about his confidence in himself. There's no doubt about this. This is guts putting this on film. Travis is very scary. And like I said, he moves from one fantasy to another. And neither one of these fantasies are healthy. (laughs) Right. He wants to be the savior of this girl. Some of these fantasies are healthy. The problem is they interact with the fantasies that are not healthy. If they were separate, that's one thing. But he combines them to mesh them up to be one whole thing. It's one thing to want to save somebody. But then it's entirely different different thing to be obsessed fixated and have that be your reality because we can see somebody on the side of the street a homeless person and go man i'd really like to help that person he can't do that he then comes up with this entire scenario where he's got to take her away from the pimp and he's got to send her back to where she came from and what's the one thing that's the constant there he has to disagree with you on that because when they're sitting in the restaurant him and iris and she talks about going to the the commune when he says that he's going to take her to the commune she's like go with me he says no i can't do it because i got you know other plans got something i'm working with the government he's got another fantasy his fixation though varies it's all over the place it's not his fixation is not to be with her right you know the commune would be living with her his fixation is to be her savior and that is to help her not be with her But originally, he wasn't going to go and kill off her pimp. He was going to give her the money because he thought he was going to assassinate. No, that's what happens. No, see, this is the thing. His one fantasy falls apart. So what does he do? He has to go finish out because now he's in full crisis mode. The fantasy of assassinating Palatine and everything that that would rot fell apart. So now he is desperate and this desperation to finish one of his fantasies to be the savior sends him back to save her. He's off the rails. What I'm saying is the Palatine one is the more important fantasy because he dismisses the opportunity to save her because the Palatine thing is much bigger in his eyes. And once that Do you falls think this apart, would have been a better movie if he actually assassinated him, took a shot at him? Maybe not killed him, but maybe just took a shot at him? Yeah. I was disappointed. That's my one disappointment in this movie. Changes the end of the movie. Not necessarily. Not if he killed him, but if he took a shot at him, at well, least got a shot off. If he took a shot at him and then he doesn't... Then he gets and, captured. Then he gets not captured. Necessarily. Not necessarily. And this is why my biggest problem with this movie is you have the Secret Service guy who knows what he looks like. And, <laughs> at, and at the end, he's a hero. And But the Secret Service guy knows what this guy looks like. Also, Travis has been known to go into Betsy's work and threaten her and tell her that she's going to end up dead like the rest of the scum there's a lot there that doesn't say hero that doesn't say hero at all oh, not uh, a hero he is not a hero in any frame no he's him. not but he's treated at the end of the movies is he yes i yes, don't know is. it depends no. on are we in our dreams uh, is he in a yes. coma is he dead it all depends on what your interpretation of the end of the movie is because that you is have true 
You have the news clippings that say he was a hero. Come on, that letter from Iris's parents. I was like, seriously, that was like Little House on the Prairie letter it right is, there. It, it was com- completely in his fantasy of how he wants to be the perfect savior. Thank you for bringing our daughter back. Yep. She's attending school now and she's very, very happy. No, I'm going with the dream. I think it's a dream sequence. I think he's dead. I think he bled out on the chair. If you want to go to the end of the movie, we can go to the end of the movie. I think we just we, <laughs> we can bounce around. I mean, we can bounce that's around. That's perfectly fine. I think where I have fallen on this, and it's something that I read, but it was something that I thought of before. A little background. Martin Scorsese was a Catholic. He grew up in the Catholic Church. He was an altar boy. He was going to go to seminary to become a priest. He decided that that was not the way that he should go. He became a filmmaker. Religious imagery is one of the things that continue in his faith keeps popping up throughout his movies. And this is why I ascribe to this particular ending to the movie. When we start to see that shot looking down and it's pulling away, that's Travis Bickle's soul leaving his body. He's dead. He's gone. And everything that comes after is the fulfillment of a fantasy that he had. I'm going to say that that was not quote unquote ending of the movie. That was not after that situation. When he's sitting in his apartment, this is what he believed would happen because the ultimate fantasy was to save her so when he's thinking up how this is all going to end that's his that is his fantasy end game i'm probably going to get wounded i'm going to be in the hospital and her parents are going to be thankful to me the press is going to write articles glowing about me I'm not going to get charged with murder because I'm this great vigilante and I've done what I said I was going to do earlier in the movie by washing the scum off of the streets. And then the ultimate, the girl that I wanted so bad that I put up on a pedestal and I idealized to the ultimate comes back to me because I'm now famous. That is entirely fantasy. There is in no world where any of that could happen. But he also reached her at the end. His own terms, though. It's on yeah. his own. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Perfect, Eric. It's on his own terms because now he can say, I'm better than you. Okay. If you say that we're, if we're going by that she's real and 100% on board, she rejects him because he's not as good as her. Or that's how he feels. Now he can say, yeah, you're not as good as I am. I can reject you. Part of the theme of this movie is him not feeling as low as he is. He has to find people that are lesser than him. He makes people lower than him because of how he feels about himself. He's a lonely guy. That's, again, why I feel like he picks on people like Tom. He looks down at other people and he, you know, he's calling all these names and some of these names are very outdated and we won't mention, you know. There are a lot of racial overtones in this movie. That's of the era. But I do think that he does that because he wants to be above somebody. And I think you're right at the end there is that on his own terms, he now can now be higher than she is because now he is that hero and he no longer needs her because he's above her now however i think if this isn't a dream sequence that when he's driving away and he looks in the rear mirror it changes again and all of a sudden the cycle might start over again and that's what scorsese says is happening is that the cycle starts over again at the end there but when he does fix the mirror that's when i don't think it's a, a dream sequence that's when i think it's still real because that is something that his psychotic self does How about this? You bring up a good point here. He drops her off. 
Okay, he doesn't take the money from her. And as he's driving away, she doesn't even make eye contact. She literally just turns and walks into her apartment. He's as high as he can be. This is the ultimate pedestal for him. He is riding high on his power, right? It's the culmination of the dream, if you will. And then he looks in his mirror and everything kind of breaks apart and falls apart, right? Mm -hmm. How about he wakes up from his fantasy? He's still dead. But he's waking up. Well, maybe he's not dead at all. Maybe the whole thing was a dream. and then Maybe he's, he's in a coma. Woke. It's very possible. I can't take his interactions with her at face value. Because after the shootout, he has no real contact with another character. You can say what you want about her. I can't trust that his interactions with her are entirely 100%. What about the other cabbies? They tell him that he has a bear. That's all they say to him. No, there's a little bit more dialogue there. Going back and forth, they're talking about something and he's answering and he's reacting to it. I'm not exactly sure of the dialogue, but he's involved in it. Because then you have another guy, uh, fourth cabbie, that comes along when he's having that conversation with them. I don't know if I agree with you on that. She does look at him and he looks at her when she gets out of the cab. Yes. So there is, there is the eye contact. We see her face. Yes, and then she turns and walks into her apartment. There's no looking at the cab driving away. Well, it is powerful. She just got yeah. rejected. She's probably moping back into her apartment. That's how he wants it to be. <laughs> yeah, maybe so. There's no way. He's in control. It's power. But it's if his he's trip. dead, he, none of this is happening. I'm not saying that. I'm, what I'm saying is this is how he fantasized it before he went through the shootout. That this is how he fantasized everything ending. So it's kind of like a dream sequence, maybe? Kind of. We're seeing what he he wanted and what drove him to go and decide to kill three people. So think about this. If it's a dream sequence after he attempts to assassinate the candidate, okay, and he's back in his apartment, it's a dream sequence. We're pretty much dreaming how he thinks it's going to lay out. He drops her off. He's driving away. He looks in the mirror and he wakes up. It's reality. I'm going to disagree with you guys. Where I'm convinced it's all real and it's not a dream fantasy and everything is after he shoots sport, he takes time and he sits on the staircase. He doesn't believe that he actually went through with it. I'm so saying that all happened. How he killed everybody is that's not part of the dream sequence. The dream no, no, sequence no, no. only no, no, no. happens after he dies. Or it's what he put in his delusional world. This is how he saw it ending. Wouldn't it be cooler though if it did end the way that I'm thinking no. that it end? I like it better this way. I was like iffy on the movie until the end. And then when it switched over and he left her walking up the steps, I was like, oh, that's messed up. I didn't see that coming. Wow. I'm not happy that he's the hero. It's something that I didn't see coming. There is no world in which he does what he did, killing three people, that he isn't in prison. But Scorsese says that it is. Unless Iris is a star witness who backs a very lucrative story of how she That's... was in prostitution. Mm. And I've thrown that out or there. Or Betsy's yeah. on, on his side, too, saying, why would she ever come to his Because he aid? might be a hero, and ah. she likes she likes the hero. Mm. Wasn't she sitting next to Ballantyne when he was going to take a shot at her, or was that Tom? They were both sitting Next they were both sitting yeah. there. And he was walking in the crowd, too, with yeah. the Secret Service guys when he didn't shoot. But there's no way that he's not in prison. Unless you come up with a situation like what happened to Joe Colombo, where he was assassinated during was a Christopher Columbus Day's parade. He was going to have a big speech, and somebody in the crowd assassinated Joe Colombo, who was the head of the Colombo crime family. There's no way he gets away with this. Well, he's already got no- away with one murder. We haven't talked yet about he shoots the robber who's robbing the convenience store, and he says, I don't know what to do here. 
the gun is, you know, it's not registered. And the owner of the shop says, don't worry, I'll take care of it. And then he just starts hitting him with a, like a, a crowbar. A crowbar. Or and I'm thinking, how does a crowbar help with a gunshot? And then amazingly, there was no blood from the gunshot. That could have been a MPAA thing. Probably so. But he gets away with that murder. I think that also helps fuel him because now he knows he can do it. He has killed somebody. He's taken somebody's life outside of the Marines. But I just think it's weird. How is this convenience store person going to take care of it, first of all? There's a gunshot and there's no gun. Oh, I, because it's 1970s New York right. and it's a black guy and it's a white store owner in the neighborhood. Bingo. It's irrelevant. They're going to take the white guy 100%, I guarantee you. Okay. Especially yep. if the kid is younger, if he's got a prior record, they're not even going to investigate it. That was one of and the big things plus, in the 70s New York. All that store owner has to say is that he shot him in self-defense. But there's no gun. They would probably need a gun. But like you're saying, maybe they don't I'm even sure care. He had a gun. They I'm don't sure care. He had they a can gun. say, hey, the guy ran out of the store. Or being the 70s New York Police Department, they would have planted a gun. Exactly. Okay. Let's talk about one thing that you brought up here that kind of struck my mind with the MPAA. The rating issue with this movie. Mm. It's, it's interesting because I watched this movie and maybe I'm desensitized, obviously, to the 2021 movies and I have to put my 1975 glasses back on. But I really did not think this was such a violent movie as it was portrayed in 1975. He had to change blood colors at the end of yes. the movie. Mm-hmm. I mean, there was so many things he had to do to avoid, what was it, an X rating? Yeah. Yep. Kind of mind-blowing because I'm like, I don't think it was really extremely violent. Yeah, but it's the blood. It's everything. And you see the mobster's face get blown apart. Yeah. That's good costuming. Yeah. And special effects there. The Um, rubber mask. The hand thing was kind of dumb, though, when he first gets shot in the hand. That's a mob thing. Yeah, but I mean, the hand itself, that didn't look real. Oh, yeah, it didn't look look real real. That that was really bad. It's still freaky. But in the 70s, blood, you look at your three days of the condor when they had the big shooting thing and how much blood was (laughs) there. There was no blood. There was no blood. Well, that's because they didn't want that X rating. Right. And that it was just a big (laughs) thing in the 70s that they wanted to stay away from. Blood made it too real. That's why Texas Chainsaw Massacre doesn't have hardly any blood in it. That's a good point. And it isn't until, I think, late 70s that we actually start getting that blood. The MPAA has went through a lot of things that set them off throughout the years. In the 70s, it was it was blood, and they didn't want to see blood. They are completely objective. There's no... Rhyme or reason? They don't, right. They don't have a guidebook. They follow the duck theory. If it looks like a duck, it quacks like a duck, then it's a duck. There was a great senator, I believe, that was talking about pornography in the 80s i'll know pornography when i see it that's kind of the that's kind of the theory that the mpaa works with well we'll know it when we see it type of a thing that's why alan dershowitz was able to tear apart the mpaa they they still have way too much authority over edited content yeah like if you watch a movie that's edited certain things you're like why wasn't that taken out there's no rhyme or reason for a lot of this since we're talking about those ratings and controversial things i really would like to talk about Jodie Foster as Iris. The fact that she's playing a 12 and a half year old hooker who she happens to be 12 and a half years old. Yeah. Oh, that's very mm-hmm. controversial. It had to go before court. She had to go see a psychologist. They had to okay it that she could play the role. And actually when the quasi nude scene, that's actually not her. No, no, no. But you know that. I must have missed the quasi nude scene. She's taking off her clothes. Her top. She even the implication that she was taking them off. Sure. She yeah. could 
couldn't be part of that scene. There was a whole thing where they had to psychologically make sure that she was okay to be able to work. How can in the you movie. do that with a twelve-year-old, though? I mean, even... I have no idea, but that's what they did. Think about The Exorcist. Right. Linda Blair had to go Linda through the Blair. same thing. And that's, yeah. they were actually going to use Linda Blair in Taxi Driver because she had went through that. But it ended up not working out. How about nope. Brooke Shields and Pretty Baby? Yeah, she did too. That was yeah. another one that they brought up in the article. That sure. I it's, it's... It just makes you feel uneasy. And I guess that's what the director wants. He wants you to feel uneasy about this relationship between uh, Sport and Iris. And... It's part of the cesspool. Right. Yes. Well, then I take it that that's not Jodie Foster dancing with him and making out a little bit. No. No way that could have happened. Nope. That's the only scene that's not Travis Bickle centric. This is also what makes the movie <laughs> great yet disturbing. disturbing. Yes. <laughs> because ultimately, as much as we've talked about how mentally off Travis Bickle is, you also root for him. The people that he's killing aren't good people. That's where there's a delicate balance. That's why she has to be a certain age. That's why everybody around him is just scum. And that's what Travis is seeing. But it all makes you start to relate to him. And that's one of the disturbing parts of that. Because then you have to remember, holy crap, I'm now agreeing with a complete lunatic. With a lunatic. What he's seeing is not right. And the guy he kills in the room, I don't know what your guys' opinion, other than being just a complete and utter scumbag pedophile, I think he was a mobster as well. It did seem like that in his. I because yeah, he I took, didn't he take a bunch of money from sport? Yeah, earlier in Harvey the film. Keitel? Yeah, he was part of the mob because the mob would have controlled all of the prostitution in New York. They would have had their hands all in that. That's one of the little things there that, that I picked up. That was interesting, though, that Bickle, though, has to also add things. He accuses sport of being a killer that he's killed people, which he has no proof of ever happening, has to add that on, I think, in order for him to justify at the end Mm -hmm. killing sport because he's, I killed the killer, not just the pimp, because if I was going to kill a pimp, I would kill all the pimps. But in this case, I'm killing a killer. And I think it's interesting that he makes up stuff on people to justify what he needs to do. Exactly. Which then goes to make you have to question how he sees everybody else, because he has a problem with sport but they make sure to let you see in that one cafeteria slash diner that all of the cabbies are at you see the black guys dressed up as pimps yes i saw that he has he has nothing to say to any of them you know what's interesting though was originally that sport was supposed to be black they felt the need to change that because of the racial undertones and afraid of rioting and he has a point there i like it better that he's not just from a story point of view i wish he didn't talk the way he talked he talks like a new york pimp well that's harvey keitel like harvey keitel for that character oh yeah he's great he also spent two weeks with a pimp and doing the research for the movie so he knows how they talk that's exactly how they talk he's a smooth talking kind of funny type of guy who relates to the guy and then is a monster to his lady one other thing about Jodie Foster the girl that's walking around with her she's a real prostitute as well mm, and she really? was she was like 18 17 when this, oh. yeah when this all was filmed and that's how Jodie Foster figured out how to act and everything as well and then Robert De Niro on top of that was an actual cab driver for a week right act- after he had won the Oscar for right. The Godfather 2 and an actor actually came in back of this cab and he recognized him and said are things that bad 
<laughs> right. Even after yeah, winning an Oscar? <laughs> Martin Scorsese loves that story. He'll tell it every single oh, time yeah. they talk no, about taxi they, driver. Yeah, there's great little stories like that throughout the movie. But Harvey Keitel's character, he's in it just enough, too. He's not in it more than he needs to be because that How? character borderlines on being dangerous as far as kind of liking him. But you see him just enough to know that he's a complete scumbag isn't it interesting that when we first see him we don't see him when iris gets into the cab he pulls her out but we only see like chest below and him throwing that crumbled 20 dollars later which later travis gives to the guy who's running the bed and breakfast the, i guess yeah yeah <laughs> the guy who's renting out the rooms sure so i'm surprised he who's gave it out to him them. i would thought he would have given the 20 back to sport i thought that would made a lot more sense but then sport wouldn't take the money that's all part of that transactional thing because if he takes the money then the cops can tie him to the money there has to be a level of separation between that guy and the actual act before i forget about this one of the things i read was bickle's character was based a little bit off john wayne's character in the searchers that should make you happy ted Hmm. well john wayne travis bickle yeah. Well, you okay. think about it, he's got the cowboy boots. It's considered a cowboy by uh, sport. I don't know. I have a hard time making that connection to the searchers. Bickle is cowboy. He looks at himself as the guy who is riding on his horse, which is the cab, and he's going to rescue the damsel in distress. I could see it. I don't know if Searchers, but it's been a while since I've seen that uh, movie. That's actually one of his favorite films from my recollection. I can understand maybe Travis in his mind thinking that, but as far as the reality of the situation. Well, it's a happy ending at the end. It's that cowboy happy ending. I saved the girl. I'm the hero type of deal. So, yeah. Well, I don't want to re go over that all again, <laughs> but there's no way in reality that could ever be. It's amazing what it's reality impossible. has given us in the last number of years. Things that we didn't think would ever be a reality has popped up its ugly little head and say, hello, reality. Here I am. When you've killed three people, one, I don't think he could have survived the injuries that he sustained. He gets shot in the neck. Yeah. I mean, let's be perfectly honest. It's a stretch to think that he survives that wound. But then to have killed three people. See, this is where there's actual law. Regardless of what you think of those three people, and they could be scum, the law does not see it that way. There's 12-year-old little girl involved. People are going to fight for him because he saved a 12-year-old girl from a pimp, a mobster at, at guy. The, I mean, At the very least, he's going to end up in the same mental facility as Mark David Chapman. At the very least. Or he should be in the same facility. He, he might not go to Rikers Island, but the very least end up in a mental facility. Look mental at this. It's also, again, like you said, the 70s. I mean, you already told me that the store owner kills a black guy robbing his store the cops are not going to care and in fact they're going to plant things if they see this guy saving a 12 year old girl from all these Mm. guys there's very much a possibility they can plant stuff to make it look like he's great you're thinking that the two situations are similar what's the major difference between the two black and white yeah there you go but the difference here also is a 12 year old girl it's the only difference that matters who's been used as a prostitute it's not even that there's a 12 year old girl there it's how they've been abusing the 12 year old girl and they need a hero and we know that everybody loves the hero especially in the 70s he is not a hero you need to stop saying that people want 
the hero. So I could see this turning out to be him being the hero. He's not the hero, but in people's eyes, you just saved a 12-year-old girl. They don't know about all the other stuff. They don't know about what we know because we're just watching the film. The Secret Service identified him. At the very least, he's going to be brought in for that, too. They identified him, but he never did anything that they can prove. They can get him. (laughs) There's no gun. Never saw him pull the gun. Never saw him pull a gun. Never saw him do anything but walk up. He's not getting away with triple murder. I don't know. He's not getting away with triple homicide. I think he can. Then that says a lot more about our justice system. Your your opinion of the police. There are certain stretches that you can logically make. I can't come up with one case that I can think of where a man shot three people and got off. I mean, you're going to have to say that this is justifiable homicide. How many juries are going to you bring a out movie the jury girl, would let him off? You you bring a 12 year old girl into the courtroom and a juror they would they would never let her testify. They don't even have to even let her testify. Just bring her into the courtroom. You guys I mean, are pulling off a sequel here, aren't you? They wanted yeah. to do a sequel, but they decided not to do it because Scorsese does believe that he lives. The, I the, mostly the, agree with the, you, Ted. The thought of this actually going to trial is kind of ridiculous. Travis Bickle is not rich. He would not have had a private attorney. He would have had a public defender, a PD. He would have had a public defender. They would have done the very least. He would have gotten a plea deal. Then if he does the plea deal, he ends up in the cuckoo bin with Mark David Chapman. You have the newspapers. They could paint him to be a hero. You're also an election year. We already talked about this is also during the time where these candidates are coming out. This is more than just the presidency that's going on here. Things can get politicized. So I think in the right perfect storm, he can get off and get off being a hero. If word came out right off the bat that he saved this little girl from three lowlifes, you know, newspaper could print him out as being a hero and they will do everything they can to make sure that he stays that way. Well, you're talking some real Citizen Kane stuff there. Which is one of his you're favorite making, you're, you're making up headlines at that point. You're no better than the Hearst papers from the late 1800s and early 1900s, where the Hearst papers actually happen. got us into a war making up headlines. I think he died, personally. I don't think he made I it. I completely agree. Yeah, I completely agree I, with you. I, agree I think with that you if it wasn't soul... for the fact that the writer and the director said he lived. Yeah. So, eh, you know I mean, what? A little bit of they, controversy goes a long way. They can say that, and it's all well and good. Okay, let's go down the this rabbit hole. Uh-oh. He walks away, and he gets off, and he's allowed to go on, and he's a murderer or vigilante. If that's the route that you want to go, now we've just made a even darker view of our society. Yes, we did. He's definitely not a Charles Bronson. No, 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 no. That is borderline dystopian as far as uh, outlook on our society. That's almost natural born killers type of an outlook on our society that we could let somebody like that off. That is as dark as it gets. I'm not disagreeing with you on that, but I'm saying that is it possible that our society allows that to happen? Neither Scorsese or Schneider has either said that this is as dark as that. I would think the only way you could do a sequel is if he didn't go to prison or if he went to prison, it wasn't very long. Well, okay. Well, take case in point. Let's go back to one of our original examples. John Hinckley Jr. has been released from his mental institution. Custody of his mother, but he has been released. Yeah, he's in, yeah. God, she's got to be like 115 oh, years must old. Must be. Case in point too, somebody in their infinite wisdom is thinking the same thing should happen to Mark David Chapman for his own safety that will probably never happen. 
these are not apples to apples. Well, it kind of is according to Travis Bickle. That's fine. If we're going that he gets out, but John he's, Lennon, not in, he's not in prison. He's in a mental health but institution. But John Lennon is not sport, and Ronald Reagan is not the innkeeper or whatever you want to call him, or the mobster. These people that got killed are very important people to society. These people are lowlifes. They're just completely different. But when Jodie Foster is asked about Hinckley, she doesn't want to talk about it. Would no. you? I, she was 18 years old. A guy tried to assassinate the president. On behalf of her. Yeah. Right. I, and that's another reason why you can never mentally prepare a 12-year-old to probably do this film. It's crazy. Well, there's a lot of schools of thought. It's like Stanley Kubrick didn't tell, is his, his name Danny Lloyd? Little Danny. Oh, yeah, Little Danny. Uh, that was a horror film. He never told him it was a horror film. But he I, never acted again. That's true. I don't have as big of a problem with that as I probably should. And you don't know what she's been told to say and not to say about the whole Hinckley situation. I haven't even heard that uh, a question of that be asked it was of on her. The, it was on the Today Show. When they had their 40th reunion. Really? Uh, yeah. Al Rocker. Oh. <laughs> Not Al Rocker. Uh, <laughs> Matt Lauer. Matt Lauer. Matt Lauer uh, asked that, that question. We know how that turned out for him. Yeah. Yeah. He's a predator no different than the guy taking the money for the, the rooms. Al but, Rocker? Um, yeah. Yeah, Al Rocker. <laughs> you know, Matt Lauer. Segway, let's talk about the musical score on this. Very eerie that the individual who did the score died. I believe he finished it and then passed away. Is it because Jackson Brown's song shows up in the film and he's like, Oh, <laughs> don't go there, man. That's, that's bad. You I, like the Eagles. I love Jackson Brown. From my understanding was the gentleman that was the composer of the film didn't like to have popular music entered yeah, into his films. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me. He seems very eccentric. I, it's a very eccentric score. Because that song in there is so different it's from odd. everything else. It, it is, works, but it though, does work. But it's so it, different from everything else. So Jackson Brown jarring. killed him? Is that what we're saying? Maybe. Okay. It's kind of jarring, that song. It's very odd. It just adds to the show. Weird that that would pop up. Why they used Jackson Brown and they didn't use the Chris Christopherson song. Exactly. That's what I was going to go with. I, I was like, wouldn't that be more pointed that he actually finally got to listen to that record? Yeah. That's Good always point. interesting <laughs> to me. Why did they play Running on Empty? <laughs> I don't know. The rest of the score, I don't think it's my type of music flows well with the movie it does it's very jazz it's not what you're going to listen to in the car but i think for the movie it plays very well it's of the era of course i listen to it when i stare into other people's windows sure yeah thoughts i'm I'm sure you do it's different i will say that there's a lot of discord in those musical undertones and everything there's a lot of uses of sharps and flats that makes it not necessarily pleasing to the ear. It kind of keeps you off balance like the rest of the movie keeps you off balance. Because he's off balance. Yeah, that's a good point. It goes with Pickle. It's kind of like ups and downs of what we're seeing here. And it changes, not drastically as hearing Jackson Brown. When I first listened to it, when we first see the, the taxi coming up and we hear that music, I'm not thrilled with it. But as the movie keeps on going, I get it and I understand it and I appreciate it as I see it played out throughout the whole movie. It is the type of music that would be in a movie of that era, though. It is that kind mm-hmm. of jazzy style of music that I think plays well for the movie, but I'm not going to listen to it in the car kind of thing. Like the jazz and, they listened to when they were doing it in Three Days of the Condor? Yeah, actually, you're you're kind of right. It is kind of that little uh, jazzy. <laughs> or at, least, at least it's not the score from The Firm. Oh. Oh. 
Bang. I still have nightmares of one guy <laughs> plucking the strings of a piano just for fun. That's my PTSD. Well, your 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 Tootsie soundtrack is on back order, so Flash, as soon as that comes flashbacks, in, Dad. flashbacks to that go Tootsie go. It's right. Which my wife has said I was surprised that we didn't make the connection between Go Cubs Go and Go Tootsie Go. Oh, I hate that song so much. Yeah, go, go Cubs Go song. Go Travis Go. Go Travis. Wow. <laughs> Wow. Hey, New York, what do you say is going to be a so murder going to kill sometimes today. <laughs> I really enjoyed how this is filmed. I'm not going to say what my grade is yet because I'll say that. But if anything, this is one of the best made films I've ever seen as far as cinematography angles. One of my favorite shots is when he's on the phone talking to Betsy and you have those three phones there and you have some of that conversation. And then the camera pans to the right. To the hallway. As, as to like leave him alone because they feel bad for him what he's going through on this phone call it's like you happen to be a friend and you're you're hanging out with somebody and then you hear some not so great news or you kind of distance yourself away from that person that's why i thought when i saw that shot i thought that was awesome it really accentuates his isolation. He's very isolated in that moment. And I did read in an interview that Marty said that that is the most important shot in the movie. Really? Oh, two points yeah. for me. Any score. That. So he said that it's supposed to convey that he's entirely isolated. There's nobody. Not even the cameraman. It's just him, essentially. I concur 100% with what Ken said. It's shot wonderfully. There isn't really any shots that aren't set up almost perfectly. The whole it's, movie is shot just incredibly in New York with the backdrop. It, it really... Right. Oh, the backdrop. And I mean, you wonder if people are actually getting arrested in the background. There's a shot where they're coming out of the porn movie theater and somebody across the street is getting arrested. And I'm wondering, is that really happening? Right. It, it seemed like it could. I mean, there's just so many wonderful shots here. And not just of New York, but we had the line at the beginning of the show saying, are you talking to me? That is shot with the mirror. Right. So it's in reverse. So you're looking at Robert De Niro's reaction in the mirror, not directly at Robert De Niro. It's just those little things here and there. That's awesome. Earlier, when you brought up the searchers, I thought that's where you were going to go with that because that's more of a cowboy scene than anything else mm -hmm. where he's trying to do the quick draw and he's pantomiming it to the mirror. Who are you talking to? Are you talking to me? And that's more cowboyish than just about anything else. But more like Dirty Harry. It's definitely of that era as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The shot, it just gets me, is we've talked about it extensively, is the shot at the end where the three murders have taken place. What they had to do to go into filming that, they were in a deserted building, and essentially they cut off the floor so they could look down and film that as it's coming back out of the room. It is it's pretty just, cool, yeah. It's so inventive, and I can't remember seeing a movie before that that would have done something so inventive or outside of the box. It adds that almost ethereal quality to the movie. It's just... That's why he's a revolutionary. It's very yeah. Hitchcock-esque. At oh, the end... Yeah, there, I can see that sure. a little bit, too. Yeah. yeah. You get to the end and everything stops. Everybody's frozen in time when they're panning out and showing everything that's happening and seeing everything that's going on outside. They track the blood down the hallway and then to sport 
at the end. The camera work but, is incredible. It really yeah, is. Yeah, it, it's really amazing. The only thing I ever had a problem with in this whole movie is when Travis almost hits Iris. Well, he hits Iris with the cab, and it looks like she's going to roll over, and then they all of a sudden show her just standing there like he had hit the brakes on her and didn't even touch her. That was the only scene that in the movie when I was watching that I was like, that was your edited bad or shot bad. It kind of bothered me a little bit. Everything else was pretty awesome. I always thought that was kind of weird when he first goes sees the porn film that it's all blurry and they don't show anything. But then when he's they with, probably couldn't. Then later on when he's with Betsy, they're kind of showing. They're showing an orgy. They're not being descriptive, but why not show something similar to that? Why are you blurting out the whole screen? Why don't you just show something kind of similar? It just was off. I mean, it took a little bit of the artsy fartsy. Yeah, it's just if you're gonna do it, then do it later. It just didn't make any sense to me on why they didn't show anything there and showed something later on. There are certain shots from this movie that have become iconic. The one being the, who are you talking to me, picture. But the picture that I can't get out of my mind is that picture of him slumped in the couch. He's got blood on him. He's got the mohawk and he's got his fingers to his head. That to me, it's an indelible image. I don't care how many movies I've seen or how much time has passed. There's no way I'll ever be able to get that image out of my mind. I think that is one of the most powerful images that comes out of the whole movie. We haven't talked much about De Niro's transformation from not a fat slob, but an out-shaped guy to he's got muscles going on. He's putting his hand over the stove. He's training himself. That's pretty intense there. That's all part of the psychosis. Yeah. That's De Niro. Yeah, well, that's De Niro. I mean, well, how much weight did he gain? 150 pounds to play Jake LaMotta in Raging Bull? Back in this time period, he was a freak of nature when it came to losing weight, gaining weight. He was. He dropped weight and gained weight just like that for parts. We just see this transformation because we didn't really touch on how brilliant De Niro is here. He ab-libs all that you talking to me in front of the mirror. He's doing all that. As far as a performance goes, this is my favorite. Robert De Niro performance of all time. He is perfect. We were just talking about you you don't want to sympathize with this guy, but he kind of makes you do. He makes you see certain things about him and you kind of want to root for him to beat this. You don't want him to be this killer, the psycho at the end, because there's things about him that you do like, especially when it comes to trying to save Iris. I don't think anybody could have done a better job than Robert De Niro did in this particular movie. You said it perfectly. It's a master's class in acting. This is why De Niro is De Niro. I miss this De Niro. I miss this guy because I haven't seen him in a while. I haven't seen The Irishman, to be honest with y'all. I know that's amazing. I just haven't really decided to give up three hours of my life yet. You need to. But stuff that he's come up with outside the Irishman over the last five or six years has made me want to throw up in my mouth a little bit. Dirty Grandpa, stuff like that. People change. Las Vegas, things of that nature. I know. But here, you're right, Ted. This is what acting is. When you want to learn from the best, this is one of those movies that you have to watch. Yep. Couldn't say it any better. Beautiful. Mark your calendar, everyone. We agree on something. He's as close to perfect here as he possibly could be. I'm not going to slam dunk anymore on the Academy, but the fact that he wasn't given the Best Actor Award going away for this role is 
just another poor decision that the Academy came up with that is unthinkable. Do you think it's because he won in Godfather 2 that they didn't want to give him another award? Because back then, you didn't see multiple awards giving out for back-to-back performances. They tried to like spread the wealth. One other thing I would say about Robert De Niro, I just love that earlier scene when he goes in to watch the porn movie and he's ordering popcorn and RC Cola (laughs) and a Clark bar. I think he wants Juju beans because they last longer last longer he's like hey Uh, what's your name and he's trying to get her name and she's that was actually his girlfriend his real life girlfriend was really in a sense that you could see the psycho in him right there but at the same time there was this innocence about it too there's this guy who just didn't want to be lonely and he just wanted to strike up a conversation i think that's all he was trying to do with her that's why i mean by great acting is you can balance sweetness of a character with the psychoness of the character at the same time Let us talk about the reviews of this movie. What do we think of it? Let's start off with Ken. Ken, I want to hear what you have to say on this. So this is a very interesting movie for me to grade because when I first saw it, I was relatively bored with it until the end. And even though Ted doesn't like my version of the ending, I liked it enough the first time that I was okay with seeing it again. I watched it a couple more times, one with the director's commentary on and one without. These performances are great from head to toe. We just talked about De Niro's performance being awesome. Jodie Foster got nominated for Best Supporting Actress. Sybil Shepard, she's so beautiful in this movie. She's the perfect pick for Robert De Niro's obsession. We didn't talk anything about Albert Brooks. I read somewhere where somebody said that people like to put comics in small roles because they can take that nothingness of a role and make it their own. And I think Albert Brooks also does it here. And the cast is great in this. The direction is great. The writing is great. I can't almost find a flaw in this movie, except for the fact that it's not my kind of movie, which that kind of bothers me. Because I do see the greatness in it. So I'm just struggling with this. However, I originally, after seeing it a couple times, saying, I'm going to watch it one more time. This is not a movie that I will ever probably watch again. I'm changing that stance on that. Oh, I'm, I'm, glad, to, I'm glad you're saying that. Okay. I'm All starting right. to feel the need to watch it again. And only because I appreciate actors. Ted is kind of like the director guy. I'm the actor guy. I love actors. And De Niro here is spot on. And De Niro here makes me want to watch this again. I was teetering between a B and a B minus. It's a B for me. It would be higher if it was my type of movie. If I was just grading it on basis of direction, writing, acting, all that stuff, it's an A+. It's not a happy movie. And I like happy movies. I like happy endings. And I like, you know, to have fun with my movies and stuff. And this is not that. This is just a well-made film, period. A solid B. Okay, Ted, what are your thoughts? I mean, I kind of tipped my hand at the beginning of the podcast. Just a little bit. This is one of those movies that you have to see. There's no two ways around it. If you want to see what movie making can be at its best, this is kind of what it looks like. This is why Scorsese sits at the big table with the directors. And this is why nowadays people look at some of the stuff that De Niro's done and be like, why is he even relevant anymore? Well, this is why. He's allowed to do the schlocky stuff that he does now because he is one of the greatest actors that's ever lived. 
he inhabits Travis Bickle like it's actually him. It's very scary. The movie itself, it's intoxicating. It's scary. It's disturbing. But you want more. And I don't know what that says about necessarily me as a person, because trust me, I've thought about that. One of the best movies of recent vintage was Joker that came out two years ago. Travis Bickle and Joker are so similar that it's almost frightening. Todd Phillips basically has come out and said between the King of Comedy and Taxi Driver, that's what he saw Joker to be. New York and Taxi Driver is the city that he portrays in Gotham. And of course, for the longest time, Gotham has been a pseudonym for New York. But when you look at this movie, it's frightening because it's a psychological profile of somebody who is a murderer. You don't usually get to creep into the mind of madness. You get a front seat look at what madness is. Like Kenneth also said, there's part of him that's endearing that you feel for this character. It's masterful. It's hard to say, you know, this is one of my favorite movies. It's like, oh, wow. What about this guy? This is one of those movies that's easily a top 25 movie for me. It fits perfectly as an A+. There's few things that I can see that are actually wrong with it. It will sit there as a testament. When movies are good, that's what movies look like. So, Eric, how do you feel about Taxi Driver? Your review is pretty spot on. There's very few things I would change about what you said. The one thing I would add to it, I'm not giving the movie an A+. I'll say that right off the bat. The one thing I would add to this movie that I would really like to see, I think this is a movie that could actually be a little bit longer. You know how a lot of times we complain that movies are too long and you can cut stuff out. Why is this in there and why is that in there? This movie, in my eyes, is a movie that I feel you could probably add another 15, 20 minutes to. And I think it would build this movie and make it a better movie with a little bit more backstory on some of our characters. It's going to give you an even deeper dive, a better front row seat to the mind of these characters. It's the one thing I really wanted It doesn't take very much away from the movie because the movie itself is a masterpiece. This is probably, for me, a top 20 movie. I don't throw A pluses out there very often. I think you got to be a top five for me to be an A plus. But this is a top tier movie. I think that anyone who hasn't seen this movie in a long time really needs to go see it and check it out. Even if it's not your type of movie, this is a movie that if you are someone who is really into directors, someone who is really into great acting, this is something that you least need to have in your view. And if you haven't seen this movie yet, you shouldn't be listening to this podcast. For me, I give this thing an A-. And I give it an A- minus only for the fact that I don't hand out A-pluses unless it's a top five. And you're probably going to be... An A movie is tough to do in my book, but this is probably as close as you're going to get to an A. But I got to go just an A- minus for that one thing I just wanted. I wanted more. It wasn't perfect. It was oh so close. But I just wanted just a little bit more backstory on it. A- minus for me, gentlemen. Well, it's some some interesting reviews we've had, and we've really talked about this movie in some great detail. Ted, where can people find us uh, on the old World Wide Web? On Twitter, you can find us at the movie underscore marquee. Ken, where can they find us on Facebook? On Facebook, you just need to look us up, the movie marquee. We're having a lot of fun on the site. We're posing questions. People are engaged. It's a fun time to be on the site. 
But we have had some questions. What is your favorite movie that was a TV show, but now is a movie or vice versa? So we've had some people come back with movies like MASH, The Addams Family. We've had some nice conversations back and forth. Sometimes people don't like us repeating words on the episode Goonies. We'll try to stop repeating words as much as we can. Yeah, it's so annoying. It's so annoying. (laughs) So annoying. (laughs) But we're having fun and we want you to come and have fun with us. We love to talk about movies. This is a little bit of a passion for us. We don't do this for money. We don't get paid, as we said before. We do this because we just love movies. So come on board. We'll love to have you. And you can also email us at themoviemarquee at gmail.com. Awesome. Well, join us uh, next episode where we're going to continue our second movie from Martin Scorsese, the 1986 release, The Color of Money with Paul Newman and Tom Cruise and all of his Tom Cruise-ness. Eric, are you going to sing Werewolf of London for us? I am going to sing Werewolf of London, absolutely. Or I'm going to sing in the way that you use it. So I'll sing a little clap in there. <laughs> it comes and uh, goes. That's right. Hope you all enjoyed this episode, and we uh, we can't wait to talk to you next. We'll look at the color o money. Thanks, everyone. Have a great, great night. See you at the movies. Thank you for stopping by at the Movie Marquee. Have a good night. Mm-hmm.